Hello? Anybody home? Today, I want you to open your mind. I've almost come to the conclusion that the story is so damning that the mass of people can't deal with it. We are in process of developing a whole series of techniques to get people actually to love their servitude. We face a hostile ideology, global in scope, atheistic in character, ruthless in purpose and insidious in method. Well, we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covet means for expanding its sphere of influence. To change the minds and the attitudes and the beliefs of the people of the world, especially the United States, to bring about one world socialist totalitarian government. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. It has patterned itself after every dictator who has ever planted the ripping imprint of a boot on the pages of history since the beginning of time. Brutes have risen to power, but they lie. Dictators free themselves, but they enslave the people. If you can get people to consent to the state of affairs in which they are living, then you have a much more easily controllable society than you would if you were relying only on clubs and firing squads and concentration camps. Tools of conquest do not necessarily come with bombs and explosions and fallout. There are weapons that are simply thoughts, attitudes, prejudices, to be found only in the minds of men. As you connect the dots between different people, organizations, places, religions, history, suddenly the picture starts to form. If you don't connect the dots, it's just a mass of what's all this about. The kingdom of God is within man, not one man, nor a group of men, but in all men, in you, you the people have the power to make this life free and beautiful, to make this life a wonderful adventure. Someone born in the United States is not more special than someone born in Mexico. Someone who is white is not more special than someone who is black. They're just vehicles for the consciousness to experience. War is peace. Freedom is slavery. Ignorance is strength. They do not want your children to be educated. They do not want you to think too much. It was learned that the aliens had been and were then manipulating masses of people through secret societies, witchcraft, magic, the occult, and religion. They reach into our children. Music, television, books. Prey on children's innocence. How can I disprove lies that are stamped with an official seal? So if you have the opportunity to stand next to one of these machines, it feels like an altar to an alien god. Genetic power is the most awesome force the planet's ever seen, but you wield it like a kid that's found his dad's gun. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc is now in the possession of the Army. Too many others know what's happening out there, and no one, no government agency has jurisdiction over the truth. Any state, any entity, any ideology that fails to recognize the worth, the dignity, the rights of man, that state is obsolete. A case to be filed under M for Mankind in the Twilight Zone. About time some of you got acquainted with the real hard truth. It's the heart that says, I will not acquiesce. Across the gulf of space, intellects vast and cool and unsympathetic regarded our planet with envious eyes. Each of us, when separated, is always looking for our other half. And the desire and the pursuit of the whole is called love. Heart perception will change everything. Freedom is the privilege to be right. Freedom from the disasters of our mistakes. 
Broadcasting from the Sonoran Desert, Monday through Thursday, 10 p.m. to midnight Pacific, and Fridays at 10.30 p.m. Pacific, on Ground Zero Dot Radio. I'm your host, Ryan Gable, and this is The Secret Teachings. If you'd like to contact the show, email us at rdgable at yahoo.com or tstradio at protonmail.com. You can find us on any radio or podcast player after the show airs. You can listen for free or visit our website. You'll find the free archive there as well. You can also subscribe to the show to get access to the ad-free archive with all of our montages and my digital books, www.tstradio.com thesecretteachings.info Social media, TST underscore underscore radio and facebook.com forward slash thesecretteachings. That is the only social media that we have. You missed last night's show. Probably a controversial show, but we did get good feedback on it. We looked at the Buffalo Bills safety, Damar Hamlin, and his on-field injury slash medical situation and how we're not allowed to question what happened to the man. We can question pretty much anything else. We're just not allowed to ask certain kinds of questions. Now, you could suggest, as we talked about last night, a lot of different things, but certain things were off limits. Doctors and physicians, without looking at him, before anything even happened, before the ambulance drove away, they knew it wasn't a vaccine that caused it. And other people said it was definitely a vaccine without also knowing any additional details. And whether you're mainstream, alternative, independent, left, right, politically, it doesn't really matter. But either way, you slice it, nobody had all of the answers. And the situation was immediately politicized. That if you're a Democrat, you could in no way, shape, or form ever question the efficacy of vaccines, which is ludicrous. And if you're a Republican and don't question the efficacy of vaccines and you like vaccines, that also still, because you're a Republican, makes you a right-wing extremist. As if, you know, you can't be anything else. And I said last night that if you can't speculate on what happened, or you can't speculate in general on certain things in society, then you don't have the ability to think and to speak and to publish and to act and to protest freely. You have the right to remain silent and the right to regurgitate whatever the mainline and even alternative, for that matter, talking points are. Without speculation, you can't have science at all because science relies on observation, speculation, hypothesis, and theory. And even if we allow for that, we often change the evidence to align with our theory rather than change the theory to align with the evidence. And in no place is this really more true than in archaeology. In no place is this really more true than in all of the sciences that are dedicated to figuring out where humans come from. Paleontology is another example. Where did humans come from? How did human civilization and society develop? Anthropology is another one. How old are these structures? How old is this culture? And so on and so forth. 
Now, there's an orthodox view of human history, and there's a slightly unorthodox view of human history. Recently, we talked about ancient apocalypse and how Graham Hancock, who is a journalist first and foremost, he's not an archaeologist. He never claims to be an archaeologist. He never claims to be a scientist or anything more than a journalist. A man who has traveled all over the world, from India to Japan to all over the Americas. He's befriended experts and scholars. And despite the fact that he's probably more informed on many of these subjects than university professors who live inside of a university and never travel and do anything, and certainly don't have an open mind, Graham Hancock has been referred to as a racist because he dares to suggest that more primitive, as, well, the mainline universities paint them, more primitive peoples could have been advanced in any way, shape, or form. Archaeology societies in the U.S. have called him racist. The people that take care of Serpent Mound in Ohio refuse to let him film there. This is a consistent thing that we find in archaeology, paleontology, uh, and in anthropology. We find this in a lot of the sciences in general, but specifically when we're talking about human origins. Now, just like when we talked about DeMar Hamlin last night and the word speculation, if we're unable to speculate and theorize about the age of a structure or the age of a piece of pottery or some human or animal bones, or some cultural idea, or some religious theme, say found in Egypt, or say found in India, etc. Then we're always going to be beholden, and this is understating the obvious, we're always going to be beholden to the mainline theory, which is usually supported by lots of money and lots of ego. It doesn't mean that because you're a university professor or because you're an expert in a field that you are not credible. That's the really the opposite of believing in everything that is official. The opposite tends to be not believing in anything official, and that doesn't help us either. There are plenty of experts, there are plenty of scientists, there are plenty of archaeologists, etc., including journalists like Graham Hancock, who have done a tremendous amount of work in their lives to chip away at the face of mainline dogma that is on the surface provably absurd. Now, this is something that I wanted to talk with you tonight about for a couple of reasons. Number one, there are two stories that have been making the rounds on social media and online in general. Two stories that I think are right up your alley, right up my alley, certainly. They come from a couple of different publications, but one of them is Science Alert. The other one is Futurism. There have been a lot of videos about this as well. The first one is, we may have been all wrong about ancient Egyptian mummies, according to some scholars. They believe they have a different factual basis now for why the Egyptians mummified bodies. Of course, nowhere in the article do they make mention, unless it's in invisible ink, that mummification is not just a process that was practiced in Egypt, 
It was a process that was practiced in South America, to the West, and in Japan, to the East. Mummification in various forms and various degrees has been practiced all around the world in different ways, in different shapes, in different forms. But nevertheless, we might all be wrong about Egyptian mummies, so we'll come to that. The Futurism article, this is a really fascinating one. I've seen this from a couple of different sources, and a few of you actually sent this to me, and I appreciate that. Archaeologists find mythical tomb of Osiris, the god of the dead, in Egypt. Now this is a big archaeological story. A couple of problems with it, though. Number one, it's, well, not really a balanced report because it's still very biased in terms of how they've analyzed what they found. The second problem is the tomb was actually uncovered back in 1887 by Felipe Viri, or Viri. In the 20th century, there were some cursory efforts to map the main structure, but nothing much was done with it until recently when some of the tombs and the other levels were excavated. So this was discovered in 1887, but now in 2023, we're finding that they've done a little bit more work on it, and so they can claim with a big, bold headline, archaeologists find mythical tomb of Osiris. See, this is the problem. It's not that they might be telling a slightly misleading story of what they found. It's not that they haven't found anything. It's just that this was found in 1887. They just didn't do much work on it. A proper, honest headline from all of these sources, especially the alternative media, would be archaeologists excavate Tomb of Osiris, which was found in 1887. You have to read through the article to find out that, oh, they actually discovered it over 100 years ago, and now they're just taking a look at it because of politics and money and science and all these other reasons. They didn't do much work on it back in the 1800s. So now they're taking a look at it again. So this isn't like a brand new thing. It's something that was discovered hundreds, uh, hundred plus years ago. Now, nonetheless... The tomb of Osiris, that's a big find, right? The tomb of Osiris. Osiris isn't even supposed to be a human. If you believe ancient alien theory, then Osiris is an alien. He's probably not buried on Earth. If you understand the mythology and the archetype of Osiris, and you understand that pharaohs, who were largely controlled by the priests, therefore the priests were largely behind the usage of images of characters like Osiris to make it seem as if the Pharaoh himself was an embodiment of Osiris. This would give the priests more control over the population. Not in all cases, but in a lot of cases, Uh, not in the case of Akhenaten, which is why he was murdered because he abolished the priesthood, but the priests would be able to obtain more control. Generally speaking, if they could depict, if they could illustrate the Pharaoh leader of the state as basically the embodiment of a god or the god like Osiris or the chief god like Ra. And this is important because it means that when they say they found the tomb of Osiris, 
There's a lot of stuff, a lot of factors that have to be considered here. We don't even have to read the article yet before we can start thinking and asking questions. Like, when they're talking about the tomb of Osiris, are they talking about the tomb of a pharaoh or the tomb of a specific person, a physical person who was mummified in the tomb? They were the embodiment of Osiris. And this is why it is said that Osiris and other gods lived for so long because they just kept passing down their essence to the next generation. So kings could rule for hundreds or thousands of years. Or is it a tomb that is symbolic? The Egyptians certainly did symbolic things. It doesn't mean everything is symbolic, but certainly they've done symbolic things. Just because you don't find a mummy doesn't mean that Maybe sometime in the past uh, that mummy was, and it could have been a thousand years ago, that mummy was extracted and removed like a brain, like a heart. You don't know. But these are good questions. These are important questions before we read the article. And it's important to ask those questions before we read the article because a lot of people just post this. I've seen this all over social media. Oh, my God, they found the tomb of Osiris. Yes, in 1887, not in 2023. They excavated the tomb of Osiris in 2023. Although they did do that in 1887, they just didn't do as much of it. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, is it the tomb of a person who embodied the idea and the image of Osiris? Or is it simply a symbolic tomb? Those are really, really important questions to ask before we go any further, whether it's about Osiris or we're talking about, again, the Damar Hamlin story. You don't know any details, so you can't say that it is or isn't the one thing that, 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 like Voldemort, we're not allowed to say the name. The thing that shall not be named. We're not allowed to say it. That's not science. That's pseudoscience. That's dogma. That's ex- expecting us to believe in magic, which is what these headlines do. We're supposed to believe in the magic of, oh, they found the mythical tomb of Osiris. It's all over YouTube. It's all over live science and futurism and science and archaeology websites all over the place. But when you read it, it's not really what they imply that it is. Still a big piece of history, but not necessarily what some people might think that it is. So here's what the article says from Futurism. Archaeologists have discovered an ancient tomb that appears to be directly modeled according to the mythical tomb of Osiris. This find was made by a Spanish-Italian archaeological team in cooperation with the Egyptian Ministry of Antiquities. Now, the one thing I find funny about the Egyptian Ministry of Antiquities is that the Egyptian Ministry of Antiquities, like any other Ministry of Antiquities, any other museum, any other dogmatically founded institution, is that no matter what you find in Egypt, if you date it outside If science dates it outside of the accepted historical narrative, particularly outside of the accepted Muslim historical narrative, then it's immediately rejected. It doesn't matter what the science says. It's just like we've had Scott Walter on this show probably half a dozen times. And he's a forensic archaeologist, basically. Um, He does forensic geology and things like that. And... He looked at the Kensington Ruinstone, and he simply, because they came to him and asked him, can you look at this? How old is this? And he said, it's pre-Columbian. They said, no, that can't be true. Well, this is what the science says, though. And he was ridiculed and criticized for that, although that 
pushed him forward to do a tremendous amount of research that led him to make other astounding discoveries. But the point is, you come to a professional, you ask them to do the analysis, and if it doesn't fit into the mold, which in Egypt, it's usually a, a Muslim mold, the same way that the Christians have their own, their own mold and the Jews have their own mold, etc., then it doesn't really matter. So the Egyptian Ministry of Antiquities, it sounds like this prestigious thing, and it is, but if what they found doesn't conform, doesn't confirm what they already believe in Egypt, then unless you're paying people off, you're not going to get your information to the public. You're not going to get it out of Egypt. You're not going to get it published. Egypt doesn't want that. The Ministry of Antiquities doesn't want that. Nobody in the mainstream or alternative media cares. The average person doesn't care about their own physical body, let alone what's happening in archaeology. Nobody cares. Unless it can confirm, at least in part, what we already think and what we already know to be true. So a Spanish-Italian archaeology team, that's who found, in cooperation with the Egyptian Ministry of Antiquities, because you have to have the approval of them and the Egyptian government to even be able to do any of this stuff in Egypt. Uh, this is what they found. The tomb was described by Egyptian lore as being um, the tomb of Osiris. Uh, they found this in the necropolis of Sheikh Abdel Kurana, a funerary complex that is part of the Deir el Bahari, the northern monastery that is located on the west bank of Thebes. The tomb was initially uncovered back in 1887. You have to get through like half the article to find that information. By Felipe Veri. And in the 20th century, there were some cursory efforts, as I said, to map the structure. However, Tomb Camp 327, which you can see marked in red below. This is the picture if you go to the Futurism article. They've never outlined this particular tomb. That's Tomb Camp, K-A-M-P-P. So they have a drawing, a depiction of it from Futurism. This article is posted under our show promo at www.thesecretteachings.info. So the article goes on. The newly identified Osiris complex includes a shaft that connects to multiple chambers that hold a number of interesting artifacts. One such area has a wall relief that shows a series of demons holding knives, which were placed there in order to protect the bodies of the dead, or at least that's what they think they replaced therefore i have a different interpretation of that in the mystical mythical history or in the occult history demons with razor sharp teeth and claws and knives symbolize especially because we're talking about a funerary complex we're talking about death here they symbolize the ripping apart the cutting off of the body the soul the spirit after death all of the negative and worldly things that could hold one back from reincarnation or reuniting with source. So perhaps the demons holding the knives represent those characters that are there to, I guess in the same way, they are assisting, they're protecting the bodies of the dead, but they're assisting in a process of reincarnation or a process of, in some cases for the pharaohs, being reborn as a star, which was also a belief system that was held in Central and South America pretty amazing that that's the case because we're talking about vast distances at a time when people weren't supposed to have that capability. But as you'll find out when you start to study archaeology and you start to read about human history, a lot of what we think we know is very inaccurate. And the, the fact of the matter is uh, the Egyptians, the 
of uh, the the Incans, the Mayans, uh, the, even the Olmecs. That's where the Mayans got their calendar from. The Olmecs, very very ancient. Don't even know anything about the Olmecs officially. Uh, these beliefs, these cultural customs, the the technology, the things that they did were way more advanced, and you find that pretty quickly if you have an open mind. Another one of the chambers that was found, the central vaulted chapel, has an emerald skinned deity sitting and facing a staircase with about a 30-foot shaft in it. The shaft connects to another room with a second shaft that goes down another 20 feet, roughly, into two rooms. It's a little bit like a maze, and then you can see pictures of it. They have a description of it, and they have a a drawing of it when you look onto the uh, Futurism article. The exact date of the structure is not known, of course. Researchers believe, however, the tomb dates back to the 25th dynasty or the 26th dynasty, somewhere between 760 and 656 B.C. or the 26th dynasty, 672 to 525 B.C. That's based on comparisons to similar tombs that contain Osirian elements. So we're not even talking about a process of carbon dating or other type of chemical dating, which can be messed up with water, can be messed up with um, different kinds of soil in the surrounding area. Uh, you know, these kinds of dating, it's, it's uh, dating processes are scientific, but they can be easily distorted, giving us incorrect dates. They're not even doing that. They're just saying based on their knowledge, and this is not a conspiracy, based on their knowledge of what they see in the surrounding area, they're guessing that these tombs are roughly... 760 to 525 BC, somewhere around there. That's when the complex they believe dates to. Is it that old? I would bet a lot of money it's not only that old, it's probably a lot older than that. Probably way older than that. Now, if they say this is the tomb of Osiris, then what we could be looking at here is, again, whether it is the embodiment of Osiris and a deity and a person and a human, or it's symbolic, if it is symbolic, it's probably more like an initiation chamber, uh, just like the hypogeum of Malta. It's probably an initiation chamber. If you look at those structures on Malta and Gozo, they are, I think, 100% out of the textbook of the secret teachings. In fact, the uh, structure known as Gigantija has the red painted walls, just like the inside of the Great Pyramid of Giza. And there are other structures likewise that have those red painted walls. It represents the womb. It represents birth. And it represents rebirth. Likely this structure and this tomb is probably an initiation chamber. That that would be my guess. And part of that initiation, the symbolic or living resurrection as they call it, involves the demons holding knives to rip apart the negative parts of the body that are holding the spirit and soul back. No, I'm not there, so I don't know. That's just controlled speculation that I think is warranted based on what we do know. We're also going to go further into this tomb when we come back from break and look at what archaeologists and scientists think that we've had wrong about mummies for this whole period of time since we first discovered them. And I'm going to talk to you about the difference between Western and Eastern archaeology. There's a big difference, and it has a lot to do with culture. I think you'll find tonight's show very interesting. This Friday, January 6th, 2023. The Secret Teachings is what you're listening to. I'm Ryan Gable, and we'll be back. 
It's 2023, the year of the rabbit, and you're listening to The Secret Teachings on Ground Zero Dot Radio. This is The Secret Teachings. If you'd like to contact the show, email Ryan at rdgable at yahoo.com or find him on Facebook at facebook.com slash thesecretteachings. Hey there, it's Ryan Gable. You know you can always listen to The Secret Teachings Monday through Friday on Ground Zero Dot Radio. I don't need it. And for free in the monetized archives on our website or on any radio or podcast player. I don't need it. But you can also help support the show by subscribing to the ad-free archive with montages, digital books, and a private RSS feed. I definitely don't need it. Just visit www.thesecretteachings.info and subscribe today. I need support economically and energetically will keep us on air into the future. If you're interested in all things that include the occult, from witchcraft to voodoo, and from mythology to alchemy, then why not check out the book Occult Arcana? Maybe you want to look at technology, black goo, UFOs, and demonic pacts made in the entertainment industry. Check out the technological elixir. Or if that's not enough, check out Good Philosophy. All three of these books are available in softcover or PDF at www.thesecretteachings.info. That's where you can read reviews, see pictures, and even order yours today. It not only supports The Secret Teachings, but most importantly, it supports you. Broadcasting from somewhere between heaven, hell, and purgatory. It's The Secret Teachings on Ground Zero Radio. Release the Kraken! Hello, folks. This is Jordan Maxwell, and you're listening to The Secret Teachings. Excellent shows with your host, Ryan Gable. Twenty thousand year old cave painting dots. Scientists believe that those dots are the earliest written language. Well, that's just considering what one study says. Not everybody agrees with that. Stone Age dots, lines, and Y-shaped marks might represent a type of proto-writing created by hunter-gatherers who lived in Europe at least twenty thousand years ago. We're talking about the last glacial maximum. 20,000 years ago, about 18,000 B.C. For those of you who do a little bit more investigating, you'll find that there are cave paintings all throughout Europe, southern France and other places that go back 10, 15,000 years prior to these 20,000-year-old cave paintings that are being talked about in this recent study. Here's what the article says. The study was published by Cambridge Archaeology Journal. They say that although cave art is better known for graceful horses and ghostly handprints, there are thousands of non-figurative or abstract marks that researchers have begun studying only in the past few decades. A team of scholars from Cambridge suggests that these seemingly abstract dots and lines when positioned near animal imagery actually represent a sophisticated writing system that explains early humans' understanding of the mating and birthing seasons of important local species. 
Now, I'm not bringing this up because I am dismissing it. I don't have any more answers than you do or they do. I'm simply looking at this from the perspective of someone on the outside looking in with no thing to prove, with no bias, at least to the best of my ability. I find it interesting that we're talking about 20,000-year-old cave paintings here in Europe because there are cave paintings in Europe that go back 30 to 40,000 years ago. So we're talking twice as far back as what these scientists are looking at. Now, why do you think, and I don't know for sure, but just a theory, just some speculation, why do you think that the Cambridge scientists aren't looking at those particular paintings? Because 20,000 years ago, roughly, if we're talking about 18,000 BC, roughly, it's still within the wheelhouse of humans developing a language. It's not too complex, but still developing a language. It falls into the, the category of plausible or slightly acceptable by universities like Cambridge. However, if you were to go back to 40,000 years ago, you would find a couple of things. You'd find, number one, that the cave paintings were as sophisticated and that they certainly had a language embedded in them. Might not be a language that we understand. It wasn't line by line, right to left, left to right, but it was a language that was painted in images. In order to have time to paint things like this, in order to have time to depict things like this, and many of these cave paintings have been linked to shamanic practices, you have to have a sophisticated culture. And to have a sophisticated culture, you have to have settlements, you have to have at least some kind of food production, you have to have things that, well, will allow you to take the time to focus on these other pursuits, at least theoretically. Which means that even if we're going with the 20,000-year-ago estimate of these paintings, that there was some kind of language the implication is we're pushing back the development of that language several hundred to several thousand years into 25 or so thousand years ago. If you go back even further, and I think this is part of the issue, I could be wrong, but part of the issue, if you go back to 30 to 40,000, B, uh, not BC, but 40, uh, 30 to 40,000 years ago, but 30, uh, that says 28 to 38,000 BC, then you're, which is the, which is the time of the, the uh, beginning of the Egyptian dynasties, according to uh, a number of ancient texts, like the, uh, I think it's called the Turin Papyrus is one of them. It dates back to around 36,000 BC, roughly estimated that the Egyptians and their civilization has been around a lot lot longer. The Turin Papyrus and the Abydos King List. So that's an important piece of information. But if you go back to that time period, then what you're looking at here is a language that would have had to have been developed a few hundred, few thousand years prior to that, which pushes the barrier, the limit, to the absolute extreme in archaeology, because in order to have those skills and that knowledge to be able to form a sophisticated kind of, of language, it might not be like our own today, but very sophisticated nonetheless, you're pushing the limit beyond what modern archaeology 
is willing to accept because if you're pushing this back into 40 plus thousand years ago, it's only around 50,000 years ago that humans are supposed to have developed the brain capacity to be able to function the way that we do today, which means that you're looking at an incorrect uh, record of human development and quote-unquote evolution. You're looking at an incorrect um, and a obviously a very speculative, but an incorrect idea of, of human development uh, socially and culturally. So I think that's why they don't want to push it back even though we have cave paintings from those times, they don't want to push it back that far. They're going to focus on what's more within the wheelhouse of acceptability through mainline archaeological groups and institutions and ideology. But again, if you go to the Abydos Kinglis or the Turin Papyrus, they state that the origins of Egyptian civilization were at least 30,000 years in the past, 28,000 BC. That's pretty old. Now, they say that a lot of these kings lived for hundreds or thousands of years. Maybe that's because they embodied, like Osiris, these kings embodied gods that ruled for certain periods of time. And maybe those periods of time had something to do with the stars. Maybe they had something to do with natural events and cycles. Certainly, as time went on, Egyptian civilization deteriorated from a state of high development to a state of not understanding what led to that high development, which is kind of contrary to the idea of how civilization is supposed to progress. Lacking sophistication and the sophistication. Usually writing doesn't come about, calendar making doesn't come about immediately. Usually building with megaliths doesn't come about immediately. But with the exception of maybe some underwater archaeology in places like Malta, that's what you find. You just find from the very beginning, megalithic construction. If you're looking at Egypt, you find from the very beginning some of the most impressive structures ever built in the history of human civilization. And then they declined in sophistication from that point onward. You find sophisticated details in cave paintings going back thirty to 40,000 years, which indicate that man was, or some version of man, was certainly more cultured and sophisticated than we would like to admit. Now, not me. I could admit anything. If you told me there were 100,000 years ago, uh, human civilization similar to our own today, I'd say, sure, I can buy that. It doesn't affect me because I don't have an ego invested in this. I don't have to rewrite a history book. I, I don't have to live with the fact that I taught you know kids and teenagers and adults wrong for 30 years of my career. These are obstacles to accepting new information. Now, the reason I started this segment off with this is because if we go back to 30-something thousand years ago and we go back to the Abydos King list or the Turin papers, we have confirmation that Egyptian civilization started way before 3,000 or so BC. Now, maybe not in terms of building things, but what we call Egypt was certainly around in those days, and the strange thing is, for, for some people who have never heard this before, like when I first learned this, I thought, well, if that's the case, maybe they did have 30,000 years to, to develop civilization. But the thing is, over that 30,000-year span, or that 27,000-year span, roughly, 3,000 BC, so that 27,000-year span, roughly, or 25,000, because 28,000 years ago, 28,000 BC, 
Uh, so 3,000 knock that out, 25,000 uh, years of development. So if you have that amount of time, that's a lot of time to develop things. But we're also talking about cataclysmic events. We're talking about the last glacial maximum. We're talking about these massive rapid meltdowns of ice. We're talking about a re-glaciation of the Younger Dryas period. We're talking about then more melting down. We're talking about massive and dramatic and rapid changes to the environment and to the climate. Very cold, very warm, earthquakes, volcanoes, you name it. So a lot of evidence of this past civilization, as people like Graham Hancock also argue, probably is underwater, probably is never going to be found uh, in the deep sea. In other cases, a little bit of underwater marine archaeology might find it or just average everyday divers see things, whether that's in India uh, or that's, you know, in, uh, in Japan. So at the end of that period of all these meltdowns, you have the emergence or the reemergence of civilization. And the reemergence of civilization resulted in the pyramids of Egypt and the complex, already well-advanced language, culture, and religion of Egypt, which includes the story of Osiris and Isis and all of the other deities and gods, uh, including uh, the development of, of, of complex processes like a very sophisticated form of writing like hieroglyphics, uh, which is said to have been given to man by the gods because otherwise you would expect the hieroglyphics to be on the pyramids and, and they're not. So it's likely the Egyptians that we know probably didn't build them. They were probably built way before and Egyptian civilization began after the melting down of all that ice from the last ice age. But the point is civilization goes back further than that that is something that can be confirmed, but because it doesn't necessarily fit into the narrative, we reduce 30 to 40,000 year old paintings to 20,000 years ago and complex language to a series of dots because that fits into the narrative. That makes sense. That fits into the paradigm. We reduce the fact that we, we believe other things the Egyptians tell us, but if they say actually our civilization goes back to 30,000 years ago, 20,000 BC, well, that can't be right because that doesn't fit into our chronology. That doesn't fit into our orthodox views. So no matter what we find, it has to fit into the Muslim view, the Christian view, the Orthodox, archaeological view, etc. And that doesn't obviously help anybody. Here's another thing that's really interesting. If you take a look, you'll have to do this research yourself because I don't know if it's that easy to pull up. But if you go back and you find in the 1990s, there was a story about these big ships that were found in Egypt. According to the Guardian newspaper, 21st of December, 1991, the year I was born, I was almost a year old, a fleet of 5,000-year-old royal ships has been found buried eight miles from the Nile. American and Egyptian archaeologists discovered the 12 large wooden ships at Abydos. This is the place where all of the Egyptian royalty, for the most part, was buried, or important Egyptian uh, priests, etc., uh, Abydos is also the location of where uh, they found part of what they say is the tomb of Osiris uh, at the necropolis of Sheikh Abdel El Kerna. Now, these boats that they found back in the 90s were 50 to 60 feet long. They were estimated to be about 5,000 years old, and they're some of the earliest boats found anywhere. 
experts say that the ships were probably meant for the burial of the souls of the pharaohs so that the boats could transport them. That is part of the iconography of the Egyptian underworld. One of the scientists said, one of the archaeologists said, we never expected to find such a fleet, especially so far from the Nile. That's David O'Connor, the expedition leader and curator of the Egyptian section of the University Museum of the University of Pennsylvania. These are 12 large wooden boats, and they found these eight miles from the Nile. Now, that story is interesting for a couple of reasons. Number one, if you jump across the world a little bit, you come to Malta. There is a tradition in Malta also of what amount to boat people, people coming on big boats, people that were masters of the sea. We know the Phoenicians were masters of the sea. We know that much later in human history or you know, more recently in terms of our modern uh, contemporary view, uh, the Portuguese were master sailors. We know the Templars were master sailors. The Scandinavians sailed the ocean. If you go back into the cartographical history, you look at cartograph, you look at maps, you'll find that places like what we would consider perhaps to be Atlantis, we find that there are islands depicted on maps that were probably in certain locations that that they were depicted, but over hundreds and hundreds of years with inundation, with water rising because of flooding, those places disappeared. Now we look at them as mythical, mystical islands, but they were real places, whether we're talking about Atlantis or we're talking about uh, the Bahamas. A lot of the Bahamas used to be above water, and now it's not. So there's a lot in history, whether that's the Turin Papyrus or it's these ancient maps, and I'm talking about before Perry Reese, that show a planet with land above the water where today it's not, and we think these are just mythical lands, it's probably because of all the melting of the ice. And the suggestion is, based on all the evidence, that there certainly was a a more advanced culture that, based on what we see out of Malta, based on what we see out of Central and South America, about the people on boats coming and bringing civilization. And, of course, the same story in Egypt. Gods came to Egypt and the Heliopolitan priests that controlled everything descended from the gods that came to Egypt to restart civilization after the floods. And what do we find in Egypt? Thousands and thousands of years old. These big wooden boats that you wouldn't expect to find, one, away from the Nile, and two, in a people that we know today as desert people. And yet you find this evidence of sophisticated maps, ways in which to determine longitude and latitude. You find sophisticated, not only maps, but depictions of the earth as only you would maybe be able to see from from the sky or maybe even from space. There was probably a culture or a series of cultures, a civilization or maybe multiple civilizations or fragments of one that mapped the world, that understood astronomy and astrology and math and science and physics. They might not have built iPads, but they surely were sophisticated and advanced, and they built with megalithic structures that stood the test of time that all seemed to align to solstices and the equinoxes, whether you're looking at Egypt 
or you're looking at the Yucatan, or you're looking at Japan, or you're looking at India, or you're looking at Malta. The list goes on and on and on. Again, the reason that I bring all this up is because when archaeologists say they found the tomb of Osiris, that makes for a good headline. YouTube videos, people on podcasts talk about it. Fun story. But there's a lot of context that needs to be Address. Number one, they didn't find this place recently. They found it in 1887. They just didn't fully excavate it in 1887. Now they've gone down and done some research. They've done some investigation. They've done some digging. They've done some cataloging. What does it mean that it's the tomb of Osiris? Does that mean that it was a tomb that was actually for people to be buried in? Did they find anything in the past or now? And even so, is it maybe not a symbolic tomb? for the processes of initiation into the mystery schools. All the levels of this facility go down, down, down. If you look at the pictures of it, it goes down, down, down like a maze, just like all of the other complex structures in Egypt, just like the complex structures you find all throughout the world, just like the structures that have the isolation chambers, the red walls like Gigantesia or the Pyramid of Giza. Just like the rituals that were held in South America, the opening of the mouth ceremony, like the opening of the mouth ceremony in Egypt, so that the Pharaoh could be reborn as a star, another practice that was held in Central and South America. We're looking at the remnants of a lost civilization. We're looking at the remnants of a sophisticated and advanced by any standard and connected culture and civilization that dates back more than a few thousand years. So they say they found the tomb of Osiris. That's at the very least interesting. How about the mummies? Because there's been a recent discovery, a recent analysis, and a recent publication that we've been wrong about mummies. The Egyptians supposedly mummified bodies to preserve them for the afterlife. Mummification, however, according to researchers, and this is a Science Alert article, may never have been intended to preserve the bodies of ancient Egyptians after death, according to experts, which is a very sharp contrast, of course, to the popular understanding of the practice. An increasing number of archaeologists say the perspective on this is false. It's wrong. That the preservative effects of mummification were accidental. They blame modern Egyptologists for propagating the misunderstanding based on little evidence. Now, maybe that's true, maybe that's not. Egyptian, uh, Egyptian um, antiquities kinds of people, they, they tend to do that a lot. So the theory goes, mummification was meant to alter the bodies in a way that didn't rely on, popular, uh, on the popular theory that the bodies would become reanimated in an afterlife. Instead, experts say Egyptians intended to turn their pharaohs into statues, works of art with religious significance has a very morbid feel to it. The Egyptologists advancing this view say that the Victorians who first studied mummies concluded that preservation was the aim due to their own macabre fascination with the afterlife. The approach suggests that the Egyptians believed kings and queens were living gods and that turning their bodies into statue after death was a way to restore their rightful form. Golden masks found in the sarcophagi of worlds would then be idolized, god-like versions of the deceased rather than lifelike portraits, according to the Egyptologists. It's a subtle distinction, 
according to Campbell Price, curator of the Manchester Museum in the UK. But it's an important one. The idea that the spirit returns to the body, or in some sense animates the body, is not as explicitly articulated as you might imagine. So basically they say that the mummies were only made to create these kind of like morbid statues. Now personally, I don't know if I believe that. I think that grossly underestimates the sophistication and the advancement of Egyptian spiritual beliefs and culture. I I think on the surface, these scientists are very wrong. And I think that Egyptologists, the ones that I've been critiquing throughout tonight's show, I think they're more right. The one thing that neither will acknowledge, however, is that mummification is not a strictly Egyptian practice. Mummification is done all over the world. Mummification is still practiced in some ways today. So mummification is something that you find in Asia. Mummification is something that you find in South America. Mummification is something that you find in Africa. Mummification takes place in a lot of ways. You can go through the preservative process of what the Egyptians did. You can do what uh, in Asia they referred to as a it was a type of suicide where you starve yourself and when you finally die, your body's essentially perfectly preserved and then they put you on display. On display. Uh, this is for like the saints. Or in South America, they mummified kings uh, in a similar way to the Egyptians. They even had the same ritual, the opening of the mouth. If you're interested in that, I have a whole section on it in my book, Occult Arcana, with a very large update for 2023. Uh, if you've already bought the digital book, I can send it to you again, so you don't have to pay for it again. Uh, but the the update is a huge section on Egypt and South America and Japan and about the common practices between the three. Just three different regions, three interesting perspectives. I think that the mummies probably are to preserve the body for lots of reasons, and it could just as well be that they were meant to preserve the body for the afterlife as much as they were meant to preserve the body as kind of like this idolistic thing. I mean, even if you don't want to consider those possibilities or consider the the mainstream or the alternative view or the alternative of the mainstream view, which is now these uh, scientists like Campbell Price saying that they believe they, these mummies were just supposed to be statues, which I don't find that to be the, I don't think that even aligns with the archaeology. But if you don't want to believe either of those things, then think about the sophistication of a culture that goes to these lengths to preserve the dead in the first place. In order to do that, you have to, and this is something, I mean, they, they might not have been mummifying people on day one after the flood, but this is something that takes a very long time to process and develop like writing like uh you know art like anything funerary practices to, of this level and of the, the to this sophistication of which although this was practiced in asia and south america if you think about mummification you think of egypt because they did it the best who wore it best who did it best the egyptians probably did it the best that's why we know so much about it that's why it's a common household thing it's a theme that everybody knows and they went above and beyond. So that takes a level of development that is culturally equal to some degree to the Great Pyramids 
and to the other complex temples and underground facilities that they built all throughout Egypt. It's something to think about because when you look at those giant boats that were found in the, the boat culture around the world and the ancient seafaring people that clearly had sophisticated ways of longitude and latitude develop, uh, uh, um, uh, to, to derive longitude and latitude, sophisticated ways of, of travel, etc., people were way more advanced and we don't know who these people were. Were they us? People say they're aliens. I don't buy that either. I think they were human civilization, far more developed than we can imagine. And a lot of that was wiped out. I agree with Graham Hancock after reading his stuff and a lot of other stuff. It was because of the meltdown of the last ice age, several meltdowns that although we have some evidence, we don't have a lot and mainline archeology, span alternative, everything. Nobody really wants to acknowledge what, the evidence is, is pointing at and, and leading us to. More of this tonight on The Secret Teachings. I'm Ryan Gable. Don't go anywhere. From the occult and theology to history and the paranormal, The Secret Teachings radio show brings you that and more Monday through Friday on GroundZero.radio. You're listening to The Secret Teachings. For more information on the show or to contact Ryan, visit thesecretteachings.info or email ryan at rdgable at yahoo.com. If you're looking to learn more in 2023, then look no further than books from The Secret Teachings. The technological elixir explores UFOs, artificial intelligence, and demonic contracts in the entertainment industry. Liberty Shrugged is an illuminating and nonpartisan look into American history, focusing on natural law, slavery, and the war for independence. Food philosophy is not a diet book, but it does help alleviate confusion over food industry propaganda with specific focus on bizarre ingredients that are put into your foods. And Occult Arcana is a compendium of esoteric wisdom, from theology and sympathetic magic to witchcraft, voodoo, and the origins of holidays. Get physical and digital copies of these books only at www.thesecretteachings.info. And remember, all physical books also come with a digital copy as well. This is one of the best discussions I've been on in a long time. You guys are right on it. Howdy, this is Joe Mars, and you're listening to The Secret Teachings. You know you can always listen to The Secret Teachings Monday through Friday on GroundZero.radio and for free in the monetized archives on our website or on any radio or podcast player. But you can also help support the show by subscribing to the ad-free archive with montages, digital books, and a private RSS feed. Just visit www.thesecretteachings.info and subscribe today. Your support economically and energetically will keep us on air into the future. Thank you for your support. Hi, this is Laura. I'm from Las Vegas, and I listen to The Secret Teachings with Ryan Gable because he never fails to provide us with great information from various topics on which he's done extensive and thorough research to back him. Thank you for all that you do and all your hard work, Ryan, and thank you for sharing it with the rest of us. This is David Icke, and you are listening to The Secret Teachings with Ryan Gable. Why else would you show up with that thing on your back just three days before President Business is going to use the crackle to end the world? President Business is going to end the world? But he's such a good guy. An octane? They make good stuff. Music, dairy products, coffee, TV shows, surveillance systems, all history books, voting machines. Wait a minute. Welcome to the darkness. I hope you find it enlightening. Think about your hero when you're at ground zero and call up to the fall of back to me. 
Attention, you are tuned into restricted airspace. Tune out immediately. This is the frequency of the secret teachings on Ground Zero Radio. Hi, it's David Childress from Ancient Aliens, and you're listening to The Secret Teachings. tuned into the secret teachings radio show i'm your host ryan gable if you're listening in the free archive thank you so much for putting up with those advertisements you can always get rid of them by subscribing to the full archive with no ads and our montages and digital books included at www.thesecretteachings.info otherwise if you continue to listen to the free archive i appreciate it because we get support from those ads when they play Otherwise, Ground Zero Dot Radio, the Aftermath FM app, welcome back to the broadcast. If you'd like to contact me directly, rdgable at yahoo.com or tstradio at protonmail.com. If you're just joining us, two big stories tonight. Scientists believe that ancient Egyptian mummies were not made, were not preserved for the afterlife. Some now believe, some scholars believe, that the mummies were made simply as decorations. Now, I don't normally agree with Egyptologists, but I do agree that the mummies and the mummification process, which was very sophisticated, very advanced, and not just practiced in Egypt, practiced also in Asia, practiced in South and Central America, is something that took place in terms of development over a period of hundreds or thousands of years, just like language, just like writing, just like art. I mean, even if it was for statues, it would take a long time to develop this process. It starts to screw a little bit around with the idea of human development. Because if we're looking at the construction of Well, the pyramids of Egypt and some of the temples, if we're looking at the attempt of later generations to fix and repair those structures, knowing that the sophistication and the level of advancement deteriorated, we're looking at the start of a civilization at its height and the end at its lowest point, which is normally not the case. So since there's not that arc there, where did the sophistication from the very beginning come from? It likely came from after the meltdown of the last ice age, over a period of successive meltdowns from the last glacial maximum, which would include the time of Atlantis. We're talking about 9,000 to 10,000 roughly BC. And we're looking at a period in which human civilization was probably much more advanced, probably much more advanced in ways that we've yet to uncover and definitely in ways that we have uncovered. We've just been unwilling to acknowledge the giant archeological paleontological uh, paleontological and anthropological elephant in the room. And that is whether we're talking about giant ships found in Abydos, giant 
seagoing ship found buried beneath or the side of, buried beside of the Great Pyramid of Giza. And this is all stuff we're talking 20 plus years old now. Or we're talking about the ship culture in South and Central America. We're talking about the ship culture in Malta. Sophisticated shipbuilding, sophisticated navigation, obviously an ability to read the stars, to map the heavens, to devise uh, maps, to calculate longitude and latitude. Uh, this would mean advancement in math and science and, well, pretty much everything that we would think that our ancestors were not capable of. A lot of the evidence of these advancements washed away with the melting down of the last ice age, but we have a lot of proof and evidence of that still in existence. And some of it is physical, some of it is cultural. For example, one thing that you might not know is that the process of mummification in Egypt was not only practiced around the world, but very specific forms of funerary practice, like you would think would be regional were also practiced around the world, including the opening of the mouth ceremony. This was practiced in South America and in Egypt. Recently, archaeologists claim that they found the tomb of Osiris, the Egyptian god of the dead. For those of you who have listened to this show, you know that the Osiris myth is one of my top three favorite myths. I tell the story a lot because it has a lot of contemporary significance. It relates to the chopping up of the king, the killing of the king. Agriculture, death and resurrection, the four horses of the apocalypse. I mean, even to the assassination of JFK. His memorial at Daly Plaza is an obelisk cut into 14 pieces. Just like, and not kind of like, but just like the story of Osiris. Cut into 14 pieces by his brother Set. If Kennedy was murdered by the government, that would kind of be his brother, uh, in a sense. But cut into 14 pieces, scattered all over the place. His brain was certainly scattered when he was hit by a bullet in the front, and they said it came from behind. It shares a lot of similarities with the Osiris story. There was treason against Kennedy in the same way there was treason against Osiris. There was treason against Veracocha. Treason against Quetzalcoatl in South and Central America, respectively. Same exact story. Treason against Indian gods. Krishna. Treason was committed against Krishna as well. All over the world, you find the same cultural traditions, the same mythological traditions, the same theological traditions, the same archaeological traditions of building. You also find the same funerary practices, which are very specific. The tomb of Osiris was actually found in 1887. Don't let that stop you from claiming this on YouTube, that they found the tomb of Osiris. Listen to my YouTube show. Listen to my radio show. No, they found it in 1887. Felipe Veri found it in 1887. It was looked at. It was touched. They blew some dust off of things, and nothing much happened to it. Tomb Camp 327 is part of the structure they did not investigate, they did not excavate. They're doing that now. This team of Spanish and Italian archaeologists. And that's really all we know about it. The only other thing we know is that some of the, we know two other things. We know they found it 
the tomb was described by Egyptian lore in the necropolis of Sheikh Abda el Kurna, a funerary complex in Deir el Bahari, the northern monastery, which is located on the west bank of Thebes. The tomb was initially uncovered back in 1887 by Philippe Verri. We also know that there are demons on the walls with knives. And I find it kind of interesting that there isn't much more of a description of what that could, that could mean or imply. They just simply say it's because, and this is the official uh, story, I'm not saying it's a conspiracy, but the official narrative, the official idea is that they were just guardians of the dead. Well, perhaps, but when you look at the same tradition everywhere, all throughout the, the world, what you find is that you're looking at a sophisticated form of afterlife-like ritual, which talks about and discusses the process by which the razor-sharp teeth, the talons, the claws of the demons, the knives they hold, they cut away... They claw away, they rip with their teeth away all of the heavy things that would prevent a person from being able to access the divine, to reincarnate or to reunite with source. So this is a very important piece of information that I've never been to Egypt. I'm not an archaeologist. I'm an occultist if I have to label myself (laughs) and I can figure this out. So I don't know if it's willful ignorance or what it is, but that is a big piece of information that could really help to understand what exactly the tomb of Osiris is, and they just kind of gloss over it like it's, well, like it's anything else in archaeology. They just kind of forget that it's, you know, even a a thing. Nobody really really cares because it doesn't fit the narrative. They want you to think that mummies now are definitely not religious or spiritual. They're just things that they would line up against the wall, and then they're telling you the tomb of Osiris is just a tomb, and it had no not not much significance. And you know they found some demons on the wall, and that probably just they were protecting the deceased. And like, well, how many bodies did you find? Did you find bodies there? Was it symbolic? Was it a ritualistic tomb? You know, can you get some more information on this? And you're probably not going to get much more because everything has to go through Egypt. Everything has to go through the Ministry of Antiquities. And unless it aligns with the Muslim view or the Christian view or the archaeological view or aligns with the Western view, you're not going to find much information beyond that. That's that's very much the bottom line. Here's an example, since, you know, I normally I grew up a Christian. So, you know, I know a lot more about Christianity than I do about Islam but there are really good things about Christianity. So although I, 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 I might rag on Christianity, there's good stuff about Christianity. I'd rather hang out with a Christian than an atheist any day. Most of the time, Christians can be crazy too. But I also have studied Islam quite a bit. And I have, some, I have one close Muslim friend. And Islam is in no way, shape, or form at all what neocons tell you it is what the mainstream media tells you that it is. Islam is completely different. Now, there are radical Muslims, just like there's radical Christians and radical Jews, and there's that whole weird ancestral Jewish-Christian fest that goes on that just, they salivate over each other in politics. But, you know, Muslims are a lot different than most people say that they are. And I've been kind of ragging on, you know, the the Muslim archaeologists tonight. 
How about Christian archaeologists? Let's go back to the 1980s. In the 1980s, during the construction of an apartment building in Jerusalem in East Talpayat, construction workers found an ossuary. An ossuary that contained bones, that contained inscriptions. Inscriptions that included statements such as, Jesus, son of Joseph. Yehuda, son of Jesus, etc., etc. Now, this got associated with James Cameron and uh, Simka uh, Jacob, uh, I forget how you pronounce the name, Jacobovic, Vicky or Vissi, uh, back in 2007. And this was very politicized, and Christians were very upset. You didn't find the tomb of Jesus? Well, actually, when they, when they discovered it, they weren't the first to discover it accidentally because when they opened the tomb, there were Templar leg bones on the ground with a skull, which is the pirate flag, Pirates of the Caribbean, the Knights Templar, who were masters of the sea. Long tradition, who Christopher Columbus, who absolutely had access to something that he was passing back and forth between his ship captains. When he sailed in the 1490s, there's the famous Book of Columbus. Perry Rees even talks about it on the Perry Rees map. Uh, and Perry Rees was in contact and had this, there's a relationship between Perry Rees and Christopher Columbus because his map was 1513. Columbus had this book that he saw that he knew that was unknown throughout Europe. And he knew where he was going to some degree. He even wrote in his log that he, he was lying about how far they were going because he wanted his he wanted his crew not to feel as if it was taking longer than it should, because it certainly was. They didn't know exactly the distance, but they had an idea where they were going. Um, that's kind of a separate story. But the point is, with with Columbus and with you know those maps, Columbus was married into uh, a Templar family, and they were masters of the sea, like the Phoenicians, uh, like whoever came to Egypt, whoever came to Malta. So. That tradition, like the Scandinavians, Scandinavian countries, they certainly had people that came here to the Americas. They even intermarried with the Indians. None of this is disputable unless you're very, uh, you're a bigot about history. It's all very provable stuff. So we're talking about the Templars who obviously had opened this this tomb, this this Talpaya ossuary, and you see these these pieces of evidence of the of the royal family of Jesus. Now. If you, uh, as a Christian, Christians say, absolutely not. In fact, I saw a biblical archaeology society. I'm, yeah, like I want to trust them. That'd be like saying the Quran archaeological, archaeological society. They're not going to give you anything that's different outside the Quran. They're not going to give you anything different outside the Bible and what you interpret the Bible to be, furthermore. So the biblical archaeological society, wrong on every account. The tomb of Jesus is not the tomb of Jesus. Well, if Christians maybe wanted to be taken seriously, like maybe if Muslims wanted to be taken seriously, they could open their mind to the possibility that Jesus, first of all, wasn't the guy's real name. Personally, I believe there was a character named Jesus. Uh, the Apocrypha, uh, Apocrypha scriptures tell you that he was very short, that he had red hair, and he had a very crooked nose. And I've said that before, and people tell me that's anti-Semitic. I don't, that's just how he's described, whatever. The point is, Christians get really upset about this stuff. Muslims get really upset about this stuff. But the bottom line is, if you really want to be taken seriously, pump the brakes and look at the fact that Jesus was not his real name. However, Jesus or Jesus or, I mean, even Yahweh for that matter, uh, these are names like Messiah. Messiah was something that pharaohs were called in Egypt. 
because pharaohs were anointed with oil that was derived from the fat of a crocodile out of the Nile River. And that fat oil was called mesa. I don't know how they pronounced it, mesa, mesa. So when a pharaoh was anointed or a priest was anointed with this oil, they would call them the mesa, uh, the messiah. So Jesus is a name. Messiah is a name. It's a title that's bestowed. I mean, that would be like if your, I mean, if your savior was named, like what are some common English names? Like Bob is always like the standard or John Doe, right? John Doe, it's just a body. If that was your standard name and someone said, we found the tomb of John Doe. Well, that just means you don't know who it is, but there's a lot of John Does. There's a lot of Bobs. There's a lot of Ryans. Is it the exact one that you're thinking of? Like the one that you believe in as a Christian? I mean, that's just so hasty to jump to those conclusions. But the tomb of Jesus, the Christians say, no way. But it's really suspicious when you start looking at it and it's all the names of the biblical care. It's literally the entire royal family of, of Jesus. Muslims now and, and Jews now will tell you, yes, that's the tomb. Why? Because it proves what Muslims and Jews have always believed, that Jesus was not a figure who literally died and was resurrected. It's a symbolic resurrection. It's not a literal resurrection. Personally, I don't believe that. I don't believe that Jesus Christ was a real person who died and was resurrected physically and then went up to heaven. I think it's, an, it's a metaphor. It, it's living resurrection. It's why Jesus goes to Lazarus and says, come forth. It's literally the same wording used by the priests in Egypt in the red painted walls of the king's chamber of the Great Pyramid of Giza. They would say, initiate name, come forth after three days, and then you would be resurrected, living resurrection in the womb, all those weird sounds, all the pressure in the darkness, communing with spirits, having the hallucinogenic substance administered to your body after days of fasting, abstaining from meat and alcohol and, and sex and things like this and social communication, thinking on your thoughts introspection, then you're resurrected, come forth, and you exit the temple to the east and the rising sun, you are reborn a son of God, daughter of God even, a S-O-N instead of an, uh, you know, uh, uh, an S-O-N of God or an S-U-N of God instead of an S-O-N of man. That's what they did. That was the process by which you aligned yourself with natural things, with natural cycles, with nature, and you became the embodiment of that concept. So a lot of people were Jesus. A lot of people were Messiahs. A lot of people were uh, given these titles. So if, if we have the tomb of Jesus, that proves that he existed, right? first of all. Second of all, with all the other royal family member name, names in the tomb or the ossuary, that means they existed, it means the story is true. It just means that some Christians can't get off this idea that it was a magical fairy tale instead of believing more so what Muslims believe, and that is that it's very scientific, that it's very historical. If you read the Quran, it's very scientific, and it actually makes a lot of sense. As I said a couple of nights ago on a show where I brought up the Quran, if you think all oh, the Quran's the book of infidels, fine. Then go read 1 Corinthians about how women are supposed to cover their heads as Christians, and then we'll talk again. The point is, this is the only point that matters. The point is, Christians won't let you go beyond their timeline. Muslims won't let you go beyond their timeline when we're talking about archaeology. 
So you have to go to other sources. You have to go to people that are not biased about this. A lot of this is cultural. And the one thing you find is that, and perhaps every experience is different uh, from a professional standpoint, but generally speaking, if you go into Western archaeology, there are a lot more strict and a lot less willing to have an open mind, doesn't matter what their religious, religious views are, than if you go to the East. If you go to the magical land of Japan, their archaeologists are a lot more open to the possibility of change, a lot more open to evidence that's presented. For example, if you look in Japan, and we don't know in the West a lot about these kinds of Japanese things, these kind, I mean, we know about you know sushi, you know about ramen, you know about anime, you know about those kinds of cultural things. You know that they have a population uh, problem. Their population numbers are dwindling and declining. They just had like 800,000 births this last year, which is another new low record. Uh, Japanese culture is dying uh, very quickly. So in Japanese archaeology, in Japanese history, uh, in the Aomori Prefecture, there is a place called Sanaya Murayama. Sanai Murayama. Sanai Murayama is a Jomon site. For those of you who don't know what the Jomon are, they are one of the, at least it was originally thought, primitive peoples that occupied Japan. The Jomon, that's J-O-M-O-N, the Jomon were supposed to have been hunter-gatherers that were not very sophisticated, hunter-gatherers that did not have any culture or society, hunter-gatherers that maybe they made some art, maybe they made some pots and things like that, but they definitely didn't have the level of knowledge and the level of skill and the sophistication to build with megaliths and to devise things based on the movement of the heavens, the stars, the planets, etc. That was what we originally thought about the Jomon culture. Now, the Japanese just recently, like with, within this century, things have changed over the last two decades. This one site that I just mentioned, the Sanai Murayama site, or the Jomon site of Sanai Murayama in the Aomori Prefecture, is complete with spacious public buildings, large public buildings, wide streets, and even planned sanitation. Now, this site goes back 4,500 years. Now, when you think about, say, the Dark Ages in Europe, you think of dirty streets, feces and urine and dead bodies and things like that. This is largely on top of, a, of an asteroid or a comet. If you read uh, Black Death, The Cosmic Connection by, I think the guy's name is Mike Hale, uh, Hale or Haley, he wrote the book Black Death about asteroids and comets being responsible for the Black Death because of the chemicals in them and all that. And there's tree ring evidence of that. Uh, so the point is, though, you think of the Middle Ages, you think of the Black Death, you think of all the unsanitary conditions, yet in places like Japan, a primitive culture, as so far as we think they are, the Jomon, who were just hunter-gatherers who had nothing of sophistication in terms of the development of society, 
4,500 years ago, it's a long time ago, they had public buildings, streets that were planned, and public sanitation. Not things that you would think are evidence of a hunter-gatherer society. That sounds like modern civilization, and this is 4,500 years ago in Japan. Japan certainly at one point was much larger, probably connected to a mainland at one point. But nevertheless, in more recent history, Japan has been very isolated. And unless you're from that region, Japan is a very, very magical place, the land of the rising sun on the other side of the world. And although the whole world is pretty magical when you think about it, uh, Japan is distinctly mystical, especially because in relatively recent history, they've been incorporated into uh, the global system of, of everything. And I think that's also part of the reason why they are seeing a cultural decline. I mean, it, there's, a, there's a great documentary about Okinawa, and Okinawa was one of the healthiest places in the world. They lived longer than anybody else until Western diets were introduced, and now they are some of the sickest people in the world or on par with the sickest people in the world. So you want evidence of a Western diet being destructive, look at Okinawa. That will give you an example of the disastrous effects of Western diets. But nonetheless, wide streets, planned sanitation, and public buildings. Now, for those of you who do not speak Japanese or have a hard time understanding the pronunciation, and I believe I am pronouncing it right, Sanai Moriyama in the Aomori Prefecture, that is S-A-N-N-A-I-M-U-R-Y-A-M-A. Japanese is very like, it's like Legos. So S-A-Sa-N-Sa-N-Sa-N. Na'i, N-A-I-M-U-R-Y-A-M-A, in the Aomori Prefecture, A-O-M-O-R-I, and then that's the prefecture. And that is, um, I like to spell things on the show because when I'm listening to shows, I hear new things. I'm like, well, how do you spell it? I can't, are you even pronouncing it right? So (laughs) that's why I'm spelling it for you. Sophisticated, 4,500 years ago, thousands of years before Europe was in the midst of the Black Death. And they're not the only ones. Japan's not the only culture to be sophisticated. I mean, have you seen Machu Picchu? Have you seen Teotihuacan? Have you seen Egypt? Have you seen the uh, Have you seen the Indus Valley or the Indus Sarasvasti civilization and the remnants that now it's, let's say over the last two decades, it's becoming more and more accepted that the peoples of Babylon and Sumeria came down and mingled with the people of the Indus Valley and brought culture Uh, like brought their culture, they were already sophisticated in the Indus Valley, brought their culture down there. So there's a merging of the cultures. And we're talking about sophistication of, well, these kinds of things, planned structures, planned development. That doesn't happen sometimes in modern civilization. I mean, have, have you ever been to a native reservation? You drive through the Navajo reservation, there's no planning I, I mean, I'm surprised they even have sanitation on the Navajo reservation. It's terrible, horrible. Yet 4,500 years ago in Japan, a supposedly primitive culture were building buildings for the public, planned sanitation, and very wide streets for commerce and travel. That slaps us right in the face when we think in contemporary orthodox terms. More about the Jomon when we come back from break here on The Secret Teachings. I'm Ryan Gable. More after this. 
thanks again. Um, this is very refreshing, and I look forward to talking with you more soon, Ryan. Hey, this is Anthony Tyler, and you are listening to The Secret Teachings with Ryan Gable, my man. It's 2023, the year of the rabbit, and you're listening to The Secret Teachings on GroundZero.radio. Want to hear more of The Secret Teachings radio show? Search for the show on any radio or podcast player, or find links and a free archive at thesecretteachings.info. If you want to get rid of those annoying ads and get extra perks like access to the montage archive, digital copies of Ryan's books, and early access to the show, then subscribe to the full show archive at thesecretteachings.info. Visit the website and click the button that says subscribe. You can do so monthly, yearly, or through a one-time donation. Your support always keeps the secret teachings on the air. You could listen to this. And again, you know, people say David has no evidence. David has no evidence. I hate this channel. Or you could listen to the secret teachings with myself, Ryan Gable, five nights a week on Ground Zero Radio. Join us to explore the outer limits of history, symbolism, parapolitics, and more. We'll explore a little bit of everything, but don't take my word for it. I'm kind of like you. I'm the last of a dying breed, a generalist. That's the secret teachings, five nights a week on Ground Zero Radio. If you enjoy the secret teachings and want to hold years of Ryan's research in your hands, visit the website and grab a physical and digital copy of Ryan's books. Occult Arcana will introduce you to sacred myths, folklore, magic, and alchemy. The technological elixir will take you from transhumanism and AI to black goo and UFOs. Food philosophy will change your mind about what we call food, germ theory, and geoengineering. And remember, shipping is always included. Some restrictions exist for international. Visit thesecretteachings.info. This is David John Knight from ReverseSpeech.com. You are listening to The Secret Teaching with Ron Gable. Attention, you are tuned into restricted airspace. Tune out immediately. This is the frequency of The Secret Teachings on Ground Zero Radio. Listening to the Secret Teachings Radio broadcast. I'm your host, Ryan Gable. Sanai Murayama in the Aomori Prefecture of Japan is a site that dates back 4,500 years ago. At least that's the peak of the site, estimated 4,500 years ago. You can probably push it back 5,000, 5,500, maybe 6,000 years ago. The estimate is 4,500 years ago, though. That's the same age of the Egyptian pyramid building. And the people that inhabited this site in Japan, Sanai Murayama, were thought to be unsophisticated, were thought to be primitive, were thought to be hunter-gatherers that did nothing more than hunt and gather and sleep and eat and all the basic things. Problem is, when you look at a site like this, archaeologists discovered that there were public buildings and wide streets and planned sanitation. Not things you would think you would find from a primitive people, no matter who they are or where they are in the world. Likewise, there's a really interesting place in Japan 
a lot of interesting places in Japan. I'd love to go there myself someday. If you go to the Akita Prefecture, there is a place called Kuromata Yama. Kuromata Yama is Mount Kuromata. According to a local legend, it is a pyramid built by an ancient people. Kuromata Yama was actually looked at scientifically by a multidisciplinary team of scientists from the Japan Pacific Rim Studies Association led by Professor Takashi Kato of Tahoku Gakuen University. They produced radar maps of Kuramata Yama in the 1990s. Here's what the professor and his team found. The maps show that the interior of the mound, quote, consists of seven terraces with stones laid out on each terrace. This is a clear indication, quoting them, a clear indication that it was shaped by man and is certainly very different from a natural mountain formed by volcanic eruptions or natural weathering. This is something that you find all over Japan, because Japan is a series of islands, kind of like Hawaii, series of different islands. In Japan, pyramids or pyramid-shaped mounds, hills and mountains are regarded as sacred. And not only sacred, but sacred beings, beings that inhabit these locations. It's not distinct to Japan. Think of Mount Olympus, for example. But mountains, not just Mount Fuji, mountains in general in Japan are considered inhabited by spirits. Mount Kuromata, for example, is a place that is synthetic or artificial. Like those giant pyramids in China that were likely covered up and never allowed to be seen from the public, but have been photographed Massive structures, like enormous structures. The same thing is found in Central America. Massive structures that are thought to just be mountains, but they're actually pyramids that were constructed by man. Now, there are certainly scientists, archaeologists, researchers, etc. in the United States. I'm sure there are some in the UK as well, Britain in particular, in South America, Central America, from Spain, from Italy, from all over the world that have open minds. Just like these Japanese researchers, just like Takashi Kato. Open mind, did the investigation, and found out that there's seven terraces with stone laid out on each terrace. And it's an indication that this structure, or what they call the Kuramatayama, the Mount Kuramata, is actually man-made in part. Now, they could have taken something natural and fiddled with it, or they could have built it totally up naturally. It's probably the, the, the former. But again, we're talking about ancient here. And the pyramid, according to local legend, it was built by an ancient people. So the locals say it was ancient. We're talking probably before the 4,500-year-ago apex of Sanai Murayama, meaning that this structure which was built, whether it was built by an unknown people or if it were attributed to the Joman, we're talking about people that if they built this, if humans built this, then obviously they were way more advanced than just simple hunter-gatherers. They were way more advanced than just what we, what we think are just barbarians. Which is what doesn't make any sense about the accusations against Mr. Hancock. Mr. Hancock has traveled the world. 
from Japan to India to the Americas. He's made documentaries. He's made TV shows. He does the physical dives at certain locations where he goes. He's done the investigations, climbed the Great Pyramid of Giza. You read Fingerprints of the Gods. You read Underworld, etc. The Sign and the Seal, the Ark of the Covenant, all these things. Graham Hancock and others as well. People like Robert Bouval and and others, etc. People like Graham Hancock have been called racist for his theories that there has been a probably an intentional and an unintentional cover-up of ancient civilization, that there was a civilization that was lost to the past during the last ice age. Somehow they say that's racist. And I never understood that because if you were to say, okay, the the Jomon people of Japan, which were the primitives and the hunter-gatherers, the Jomon people of Japan, they were just primitive. They were ignorant savages that didn't know how to do anything. And then you find out that they weren't savages and they weren't ignorant and they, I mean, they might not have had iPads, but they weren't ignorant and they were way more sophisticated than we give them credit for. These are all things that are true. And they had a level of development that is beyond our understanding today. The difference is with Western and Eastern archaeology is that in Western archaeology, we just dismiss it and we still say they're primitive and they're ignorant when we're actually quite ignorant and primitive in our assumptions. And when Mr. Graham Hancock says, actually, that's not the case, they were way more advanced then they call him a racist. But wouldn't it be more racist to suggest that those primitive people weren't advanced when the evidence clearly states that? That's the first point. The second point that I want to make is that in Eastern archaeology, at least from what I've read about Japanese archaeology, the Japanese are way more open to changes. The local people believe that this pyramid, Kuromata, was built by humans, by an ancient people. The scientists, this is an official uh, geologist, multidisciplinary team of scientists from Japan Pacific Rim Studies Association, led by Professor Takashi Kato, of Tohoku Gakuen University. They get together, they do the investigation, and what do they find? Well, the evidence. And then they alter the, I don't know what their theory was before, but they alter the idea that some people have that it's not man-made, and they show you that based on the evidence, there are seven terraces with stone laid out on each, and this is a clear indication it was shaped by man. And Graham Hancock said this about his travels in Japan as well. They let him handle artifacts. They let him see things that were very ancient. They didn't hide things. They didn't try to play coy with him. Uh, In fact, I was reading uh, something Graham Hancock had written recently, and he said, while most people would um, rather be mummified than have me in their museum, the Japanese are way more open. And that was 20 years ago when he wrote that. Way more open to this kind of an investigation. In fact... It's not well known, but one of the oldest pieces of pottery in the world is from Japan. It's a Joman pot that dates, get this, officially, this is the official date. And consider that when I state this official date, this is not disputed by anybody. When I state this official date, the level of sophistication culturally that you get to to build, to, to make not only pots, because pottery, it's pretty standard, typical stuff. But the stuff that the Joman made was much more complex. They pressed things into the clay. It indicated a level of advancement in culture that was not totally primitive. 
not to mention these other sites where they clearly were doing things like, well, sanitation and city planning, in essence, not like today, of course, but city planning, in essence, 4,500 plus years ago. This pot, the Jomon pot, excavated at Oda Yamamoto, number one, Iseki. You spell that O-D-A-Y-A-M-A-M-A-O-T-O. You break it down. Oda Yamamoto. This pot fragment is 16,500 years old. There was a thriving, not primitive, and not strictly hunter-gatherer, but advanced culture in Japan at the heart of the last ice age. I don't think that can be disputed at this point. Now, it's not a well-known fact that the Jomon of Japan are the oldest pottery-making culture and not just the oldest, the oldest by a lot. Like, not a few years, like thousands of years. The oldest Jomon pottery is over 16,000 years old. The youngest examples are about 2,000 years old. That means through the cataclysms of the last glacial maximum, the meltdown periods, the younger Dryas, more meltdown periods, and climatic conditions that certainly were different in Japan and different parts of Japan than the rest of the world. But this means you had a culture like the Juman who were in existence literally for at base minimum 14,000 years of consistent culture that would need language, would have religion, that would have development socially and culturally, probably would have sanitation, probably would have public buildings, probably would have wide roads, probably would have not just clay pots, but clay pots that were, this is why they call them the Jomon anyway. Uh, the, the, the word uh, Jomon means cord mark. They would put cord marks into the pottery, very distinctive, very unique. And their culture existed for 14,000 plus years. Now, the weird thing about the Jomon is they never really went away. In fact, some believe that Jomon culture just merged with, well, it just kind of became modern Japanese culture. Uh, the next group of people, this is the archaeological and historical narrative. The archaeological narrative is that there was an influx of people into Japan. The estimate is Korea, from Korea, about 2,700 or so years ago. And that these people came to Japan, but the proof is in the pudding. There's no record of genocide. There's no record of conflict or war with the native Jomon people. And this is what we call them. We don't know what they were called. So these next people that come are called the Yayaoi. And modern scholars also don't know who they were, but they were what we think we know, what Japanese archaeologists say. They were highly sophisticated rice growers. And the Jaman, or the Jomon, they inhabited the land with the Yayaoi in a way that was harmonious. I mean, I'm sure there were conflict, I'm sure there were battle, but there's no sites of battles and conflicts and war and genocide. In other words, Jomon culture basically merged with Yayaoi culture and became one and the same. At least that's kind of the, the idea of what happened. And there's probably older fragments of this pottery than just what was found at Oda Yama Eoto, number one, Iseki.
Now, the weird thing about the Japanese tradition is it's so alien already to the mo- to most of the world that just the words themselves, I think, for a lot of people are just, it's too much to pronounce. You know, like, you, you, you can get Gobekli Tepe. A little bit hard to pronounce sometimes. People say Gobekli Tepe. Gobekli Tepe. Gobekli Tepe. Gobekli Tepe, that's kind of a hard one. You can pronounce that. But if you're expected to remember Oda Yama Meoto and say it fast, Oda Yama Meoto, Oda Yama Meoto, Oda Yama Meoto, number one Ayaseki, not many people can remember that in the West. Or if you're supposed to remember, like, you can remember Machu Picchu, Serpent Mound. But if you're supposed to remember these places like Sanai Murayama, unless you speak Japanese or you're fluent in languages, just the language itself can be a deterrent to understanding these incredible finds in Japan, such as, well, the place I just mentioned, Sanai Murayama. Sanai Murayama is a place where we have a sophisticated culture 4,500 years ago with thousands of years of cultural development that led to planned sanitation and wide streets and public buildings. Or if you look at, or Kuromata-yama. Kuromata-yama, or Mount Kuromata, was investigated by the Japanese, and they found that it was artificial. Now, there might have been some pushback at the time in the 90s, but generally speaking, the Japanese said, oh, okay, we did the investigation. This is what we found. It confirms the legend. It's artificial to some degree. And that goes into the, into the record. That doesn't happen a lot in Western archaeology. You have this uptight attitude, this egocentric, ego-driven attitude, this religious, Christian, Muslim, Jewish doctrine of if it's older than XYZ, then it can't be right because of my interpretation of the Bible. If it's older than XYZ, it can't be older because of my interpretation of the Quran. If it's if it's from uh, you know a, a certain uh, a certain part of the of the country where there wasn't supposed to be development, then just bury it again. Just forget about it. I mean, it's it's a it's really amazing that we even have Gobekli Tepe. To be honest with you, it's really amazing. It's amazing that they even admit that there's like multiple other complexes that are buried there. They've only excavated about. 10% or something like that of Gobekli Tepe. It's amazing that there's even acknowledgement that Yanaguni is a, is a real place. I mean, until you see the pictures in the video, just unbelievably massive underwater remains that, it, I mean, just like what's off the coast of, of India, west and east. I mean, we're talking the, the last ice age. We're talking Graham Hancock's theory of a lost Ice Age civilization. It's amazing we even have acknowledgement that those things exist. Truly amazing. But again, it's, it's you know, the language is, it's hard to pronounce these words. I mean, I honestly, I'm, I don't speak Japanese. I'm, I am learning Japanese, but it, Japanese is easy to learn in the sense that it's, it's broken up like Legos. You can just, everything is, is broken up into little segments. Like, Kuromata is ku, ro, mata simple once you read it and then you can say it fast Kuramata, Kuramata Yama it's the mountain of Kuramata, very simple but unless you know that if you, you don't study the language or something then it's hard to pronounce and it's much easier to remember Machu Picchu I mean I mean, even Teotihuacan is pretty easy to pronounce in comparison 
uh, in comparison to Oda Yama Mayoto. <laughs> now I can't even pronounce it. Oda Yama Mayoto. So certainly it's because of language for one, and it's because the Eastern archaeologists in places in particular like Japan have a much more open mind. When the legends said this mountain of Kuromata is man-made, Takashi Keoto went and investigated it and found out it is man-made. The science says it's man-made. We'll go with that because that's what the science says. We don't just bury it because it doesn't align with our preconceived viewpoints. Not only that, story gets perhaps even more interesting because archaeologists believe that the Zhoman were the dominant culture until the Yayoi and that they believe they brought rice cultivation to Japan. Turns out the evidence is now that the Zhoman were cultivating rice thousands of years before the Yayoi. And Matsu Tsukada of the Quaternary Ecology Laboratory of the University of Washington said that there's evidence that they were cultivating rice, get this, 12,000, that's 12,000, not 1,200, roughly 12,000 years ago. That is beyond anything that is comprehensible because rice cultivation is supposed to be not something of hunter-gatherers. But that idea of the Zhoman is changing 12,000, roughly 12,000 years ago. Uh, that means that these people were way more sophisticated. If you were cultivating rice 12,000 years ago in the middle of the Ice Age, the end, well, the end of the Ice Age, I should say, the end of the Ice Age, uh, then maybe you had the sophistication to build structures like Mount Kuromata. Maybe you had the sophistication to develop modern, like, city planning. Uh, there are other sites in Japan, and they're not as complex as Stonehenge, but other rock sites in Japan. They really honor rocks, uh, large rocks, uh, mountains, uh, pyramidal-shaped structures, like pyramidal hills and things like that. Uh, they have the dogu. Uh, the dogu are... And there's this is a generic term, dogu. Uh, it is basically a, uh, I think one of the best ones, like 3,000 years old, they say one of the, the best known ones is a figure uh, that is anthropoid. Uh, they're not really sure if it's human. You actually might have seen this on Ancient Aliens. I think they've probably shown this. They've got hands and feet, legs and arms and a head like human beings, but their faces are distorted, almost like they're hiding behind some kind of mask or helmet. The dogu include human faces that are frozen in an act of screaming, faces that have animal characteristics like a cat, almost like half human, half cat, like something from Egypt, like the cat goddess Bast, female body with a cat head, uh, or some that have human forms that are definitely human, uh, like the 5,000-year-old Venus of Jomon, which is almost, which was... I mean, it's almost identical. The idea is identical. It's almost identical to what was found in Malta, what's been found all over Europe. Goddess worship going back thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Uh, and obviously that has everything to do with childbirth. And there's a strong relationship between childbirth and agriculture uh, in terms of the planting of the crops and then the harvesting nine months later. So you have that 
in Japan, the Jomon, and you have the Dogu of the Jomon and perhaps earlier people, earlier civilization. And you also have these big stones, the Iwakura, big stones that the Japanese hold in reverence. Some of them are natural, some of them are part natural, part artificial, some of them are totally artificial, like they're in terms of the like they're constructed, they're they're chipped away at, they're polished, etc. Uh, and the the rocks, the trees, the mountains, nature has a special significance in Japan. Uh, some of these megalithic sites are really something to behold. You look at pictures of them, uh, you see that the structures themselves are super sophisticated. They are super complex, all because these structures relate to a time, dated to a time, when the archaeological records suggest there were just hunter-gatherers, which means that we have to push back not only the world, but Japan in particular in this case. We have to push back the development of culture thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years. If the one professor is right, we're talking about they were cultivating rice and making mountains, quite literally, at the end of the last ice age, like the end of the Younger Dryas, and as the ice was melting, we're talking thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago, Arguably, arguably, as Robert Schock has suggested, um, not about Japan, but about the Sphinx, that the Sphinx was built around the same time period. We're talking between ten to 12,000 years ago, somewhere around there. You know, r- roughly estimated because all the water erosion. So, I mean, that means that the Japanese or the Jomon were cultivating rice and building these structures at a time in which maybe the Sphinx was being built. And they had sophisticated development of structures and city planning at a time when the pyramids were being built 4,500 years ago, these official uh, dates anyway. Uh, all these sacred locations, the sacred sites, the sacred mountains, uh, or the Reizen in Japanese, or the Shint Aizan, the mountain which is worshipped as an actual being or entity, a deity, uh, the the object uh, of the mountain is the is the thing to be worshipped. It is the idol. Uh, and then, of course, the Japanese tradition, the Japanese idea of the kami, which are the spirits. The kami are the spirits that well, they basically inhabit everything. They're the spirits that aren't really good or bad something that I kind of identify with here on The Secret Teachings because I tell you all the time, daemons, it's the unconscious and subconscious mind, it's desires, it's things that you're consciously aware of and things you're unconsciously aware of. It's the demon and angel on your shoulder. Angels are sometimes demonic. Demons are sometimes angelic. Angels can sometimes hurt you. Demons can sometimes help you. I identify strongly with the kami. Kami are gods, but they're not gods like Christians and Jews and Muslims think. Kami are supernaturally powerful, but they're not omnipotent. They can be killed. Sometimes they do good. Sometimes they do harm. The idea, and this is part of Shinto, is that they they are to be honored and respected. And it is these these kami that in some cases inhabit uh, sacred places. They inhabit mountains and and things like that. Uh, The sacred mountains, the Riazan. So the other thing about Japan in regard to Eastern archaeology is that 
since they don't have that strict Christian or Muslim baseline, and even though Japan is a very technical society, they still have a lot of spiritual aspects that they that they hold to be uh, hold to be dear. Japan is more open to these other possibilities, and I think that's, in, in my opinion, I think that's why Japan is is a place of not only magic and mystery, but a place where when the evidence is presented, they have an open mind to hearing it. And that's why they're willing to push their culture and their traditions and their civilization back to when the evidence confirms that it should go back to. There's a there's another place, this is a, a really interesting story, there's another place in Japan, at the Nara Prefecture on the island of Honshu, one of the islands. There's a mountain called Miwayama, or the sacred Yama, Miwa, uh, mountain, mountain, Miwa, Miwa mountain. Uh, there is a god, uh, Kami, that inhabits this mountain. And this mountain is important in the Shinto religion. His name is, I'm going to pronounce it very slowly, Omo no nu Shino. That's Omo no nu Shino Kami. Because he, again, is a god. Uh, he's also known by Deyakoku. Kusama. According to the ancient belief system there in that region, according to the ancient texts of Japan, he is the guardian of human life. He taught mankind how to cure disease, just like the Yellow Emperor of China. How to manufacture medicine, just like the Yellow Emperor of China. And how to grow crops. He's an agricultural deity worshipped in the Riazan, or the sacred mountain. This particular mountain, Miwayama, sacred to the Shinto followers, or the followers of Shintoism, this sacred mountain with this god, this kami, shares a striking similarity with things we find in the West. The symbol of Omo Nonushi no Kami is a serpent, and serpents are still venerated on Mount Miwa. Pilgrims bring them boiled eggs, and other things. The reason that that's important is because the serpent is a symbol not only in the east of civilization and knowledge and wisdom, but it's also a symbol in the west, usually seen as more evil, but it's something you find all throughout South and Central America, all throughout the Americas. Think of Serpent Mound, for example. Think of Veracocha and Quetzalcoatl, the plum serpent. Think of the Urias, the cobra, the serpent. In Egypt, think of the serpents of Naga in India. Think of serpents of Japan, the serpent symbol of the protector of mankind. It's the same idea everywhere you look, everywhere in the world. Eastern archaeologists just seem to be more willing to accept that there's a universal tradition. And when their beliefs are called into question, generally speaking, Eastern archaeologists, Japanese archaeologists tend to be more open to changing They're more open to the dialogue and more open to changing uh, what is considered official narrative. I hope you've enjoyed tonight's show. I thought I'd do a fun, informative Friday night show. We looked at the tomb of Jesus. We looked at tomb of Osiris. We looked at the idea of what mummies are. New ideas about mummies are out. And we also looked at Japan, that magical, mystical land far, far away. Land of the rising sun. The very foundation, like Ame Terasu, the goddess, the very foundation of the mysteries and of the secret teachings. Stay safe, stay informed, stay healthy. We'll talk to you 
on the next broadcast. Have a good weekend. Jamata. Thank you.